We're continuing our series. I think of a better title. It sounds too much like a like a game show, but you asked for it. Um, anyway, it's it's passages that you have come to me and said, Pastor Brock, I'd like more explanation on this, and and passages, but also if there's a topic that somebody brings up that I um, can take a couple passages and explain further, I'm also open to that, and that's kind of what fits uh, today will be mostly in the book of Romans, so you can turn to Romans chapter 8, and the question was asked, Pastor, I'd like to know more about the understanding of what we some call predestination and man's free will or man's choice. Now, some of you may hear that and say, Pastor Brock, we just got done talking about the version issue. You really want to break into that? Well, hey, it's you asked for it. So, um, and no, I, I am perfectly comfortable addressing this because it, I, I want our folks to understand. I'm not afraid of this at all because you, as you see, as you're going to see today, um, folks, we just go to what Scripture says and what Scripture says, we proclaim it. And when our logic, our human logic can't understand it, we still don't ultimately serve or submit to our own logic, but we serve, we submit to God's truth. And so in one sense, it's uh, very easy to cover this. We're just going to see what God's word says about it. And you can see for yourself. Um, and I ultimately, this truth was given to us in Scripture to be a hope and an a, a encouragement to us, to give us confidence. And so often in our circles today, it's not that, and it's a shame. We miss the point of all this. But it is. How can God elect or predestine people to salvation, and yet man have a choice? Or how does this affect man's free will? Now, let me give just one um, point about that phrase. Free will. I try to avoid free will from this standpoint that there is a number of denominations that refer to free will. There's free will Baptists and different things that believe things. Now, I hope nobody's from a free will, free will Baptist background, um, but there are real concerns with some of things that are taught in those that really in some sense don't have to do with what we think of with free will. So to avoid that misunderstanding, I would rather refer to it as man has a responsibility. God has given him a choice or a responsibility, but at the same time, God does choose. He does predestinate, and we have that very word in this passage, Romans 8, 29 through 30. Um, Unfortunately, this topic's misunderstood and, and feared by many today, as I mentioned. But both are proclaimed in Scripture, and we just need to submit to that. Now, I could, in this, just give, and I'm actually going to read this. I went back to a statement that I had put in our initial document. When we were called to this church, we were given a large questionnaire to fill out, and that was great. It gave you an opportunity. It covered, it was very complete. I was very impressed with what the leaders uh, came up with. It covered almost everything that I would have covered anyway, and it did cover what is your take, what is your position on reform 
theology and, and election and all of this. And very succinctly, this is what I put, and I think it's a good basis for where we're headed today. I, I put in that document, I believe that God in his grace and mercy chooses or elects those whom he saves. This election is not based upon his foreknowledge as defined by his knowledge of those who will choose him and those who will not. His choice certainly is not based on man's works, but rather on his grace alone. That's key. I also believe that man has been given the personal responsibility to choose Christ as his personal savior or reject him. God has offered salvation to all, and those who refuse him are completely responsible for their decision. Now, you might say, well, Pastor Brock, that pretty much answered the question, right? We can go home. Well, I'd like to flesh that out a little bit more with Scripture, too, as well, and, and we'll do that. So let's read this, Romans 8, 29 through 30. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Lord, give us understanding today. A truth that is supposed to fill us with confidence and joy. And yet, in, in some cases, has been misapplied and, and misused. Um, and... Father, many times we know there's, there's two polar sides to this doctrine, and both, if they allow, allow themselves, can go too far with man's logic and not just base their positions on what Scripture says. Father, help us not to do that today. Help us to be willing to fully affirm what your word says on this, but then not to take it further in our own logic, but to leave those, those issues about how this works together to your superior knowledge and wisdom in these matters. And Lord, my prayers in the end will just be in awe of your grace and mercy to us as your people. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, in this predestination and man's responsibility, two sides here. How can they fit together? Well, let's look first of all, since we brought up Romans 8, 29 through 30, God's choice, and that is salvation is by God's sovereign choice. We can't avoid that. There's too many scriptures that um, indicate that that is true. And so, but wait for the whole presentation today, for those of you that tend to get a little nervous about this. Let's look back at verse 29. For whom he did foreknow. That's the first question really in this verse that people come up to. And they, they wonder, what does foreknow mean? And there's been many attempts to describe. And one attempt has been for those that end up on one side of this issue, well, they say, well, I, I don't believe that God chooses or elects. So what foreknew or foreknow means is that God could, because he is God, look ahead in time and see those who would choose him and those who would not. And therefore, since he knows that, then he predestinates to be conformed to the image of his son. So God looks rather than it being foreknow, which by the way, the Greek word is being able to see 
ahead to know all things, but it can be applied, and I think it's applied in this, to know in a personal way. In other words, the God knowing in a personal way comes before even the faith um, as, he, as he sees ahead. But then this other aspect, which we'll get to in a minute, predestinate, clinches the idea that, yes, God does choose. He does know, but he chooses in advance in this idea of election. Okay? One aspect of that, though, let, let's go back to that um, perception that God foreknows, and so he looks in the future, and he knows who's going to choose, who's going to choose him in faith, and who's not. Folks, ultimately, if you thought about this, is that the best answer to God's sovereignty? If God truly is sovereign, he's in control of all things, yet what does that uh, perception or um, position say? It really does still, in a future way, put the initiative on man's decision rather than God's gracious act. God still is acting based on what somebody in the future is going to do. And that still then, in this sense, puts, even though, you know, people have thought through this and there's a lot of well-meaning people, there may be even some folks here that have thought this in, in the past, and hopefully this will be of help to you, that this is a good description of this. But in the end, can God be fully in control and sovereign if it's still waiting, if he's still waiting on the initiative of somebody in the future to accept him? That you can't have those two concepts. God is either, either sovereign or in some sense he has to wait on, even if it's in the future, someone to believe and accept him. And so the initiative then is placed on man's decision rather than God's gracious act. And really, if you think through it carefully, it does almost emphasize man's decision and not works because faith, you have to be careful about calling faith a work. But it's something that, that relies on what man's going to do rather than God's grace. And one of the main points of election is again, not to make us fearful, but to point out God's sovereign grace in all of our lives. None of us deserve salvation. And yet God in his grace is willing to predestinate, to choose us in that way. The word for foreknow here doesn't mean refer to a general knowledge, although God certainly knows everything, right? He has a general knowledge. He knows who's going to accept him, who's going to put faith and trust in what we call the future. You're now trying to tie God down in time. You understand uh, God is above time. Um, but there's that general knowledge, but really in context here and with the, the Greek meaning of this, this has a specific, this means a specific knowledge of his own that he knows before they ever trust in him, that there is a relationship a special knowledge of that whole individual that can only be for those that are his people. Now let's look at this word predestinate. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. The idea, he knew what was going to happen, but remember, again, according to this meaning, he knew us in a personal way, and he did predestinate. Has, that has the idea of those marked out for a destination 
ahead of time. In the direct sense of the meaning of the Greek word, there's no sense here of God looking ahead in time. Let me see what this individual is going to do. Okay, they're going to trust me, so I'm going to predestinate them and provide for them salvation. The word predestinate has the idea of God's choice in election, marking out a destination for a destination ahead of time. That really is the simple meaning of the word. What happens is people don't like that meaning, and so they add to it, or they change it, and say, no, really, it must be that God knew ahead of time, and it was somehow dependent or whatever on that what person was, was going to do, okay? This really does mean his sovereign selection of individuals in this regard. Um, also, again, another aspect of this as well that I need to emphasize is that it has the idea of almost God looking into the future and seeing who's going to trust him and who's going to accept him. And in a sense, although not entirely, I think this is still accurate. It's almost, it's almost like an idea where you have a teen activity or you have a school baseball team or, or some sort of game that, that two teams are trying to get together and uh, they, they call two leaders or two captains and the captain picks who he wants to be on the team based on their abilities and how he thinks they're going to function on their team. In one sense, if you really want to take this position, it really does kind of have the idea of God looking through time and picking, oh, I really want them on my team because I know they're going to have faith and trust in me. And folks, that should bother us because that's not really fully a definition of, of grace is nothing that we God sees in the future about us that would want to make him pick us on his team. That's, that's why we need grace. None of us are, are, um, are good enough or even our desire to want to choose him in faith, but it's all his sovereign choice and his grace. If we're going to err and we're not erring, but we, we need, if we're going to emphasize one or the other, God's grace must be emphasized over anything that man will do. That definition of grace is so important. And then let's look at Romans 9 here real quickly. Now, this is this part of the, of the aspect of election that we really kind of, oh, it, it bothers us because Paul is so clear about what our response should be to election and yet I have to include this in this response, in this discussion, because it really is the response that we should have as God's people. Romans 9, look at verse 11. And folks, we could spend a lot of time, by the way, in Romans chapter 9. I was listening to a couple of Dr. Mark Minnick's sermons on this, and he covers 9, 10, and 11 on this issue of election and takes a lot of messages to do it. And we're not going to take that kind of time. Um, but there are some important aspects that we need to understand in our response to this truth of predestination and election. He talks about election in verse 11 of chapter 9. For the children, he's talking about Jacob and Esau here, being chosen to be the people of God, the nation of Israel, versus the people of Edom. God chose one 
neither done, having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. This is a general sense that what God decides to choose, he does not for because that person has done good or evil, but because of his sovereign choice. And he chose Jacob, even though he wasn't the oldest, to be the forerunner, the, the father of the children of Israel, just because of God's grace, and Esau to be the, the father of the children of Edom, who did not end up being God's chosen people. The purpose of election had to stand, because it's not of works, but it's all of God's grace, and that has to be the framework by which we understand this whole idea of election. Ultimately, we have to give God's grace its, his full reign and make sure there's no aspect of works in, with, uh, in this whole thing at all. So then what, what, what is the response to people to that? And that next verse talks about Jacob, have I loved, but Esau, have I hated? Let me make something clear on that. That bothers us too, because it almost sounds like, like God had an emotional love and desire for Jacob. And we all know what the word hate means somebody you can't stand them and you never want to be by them and, and you really have murderous thoughts, things like that. that. That's not at all, folks, what Paul's saying there. He's saying God favored Israel and rejected Esau as the father of his people. It's not hate in an emotional sense, like God in election chooses some and hates others. That's not uh, the right description of what's going on here. He's just pointing out that God chose Jacob to be the father of Israel, named him Israel. Esau, he chose to be the father of the nation of Edom. And that was God's choice. He had the right to do that. What do we do then when we come across that? Does that bother us? What should our attitude be? Well, Paul gives us our, the right attitude that we should have on no uncertain terms here. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid, or really the word there, the Greek word means, may it never be. Folks, when we come to the issue of election or any doctrine about God, when it, when it uh, turns us or tempts us to say God must not be fair or he must be unrighteous in this, we have crossed over a line, Paul's saying here, that we should never cross. We should never look at anything in our lives or God's doctrinal truth and say, well, if that's true, God is not fair or unrighteous. No, don't ever do that. That is totally inappropriate and wrong. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. We have to submit ourselves to God's sovereign will, and let God decide who he's going to show mercy and grace to. Paul says we have to do that and submit to him. Let's skip ahead to verse 18. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and on whom he will hardeneth. Then wilt thou say unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? And this is the part that, again, really kind of gets our dander up, so to speak. You know, some people say, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay, the same lump to make one vessel unto honor, and another unto dishonor? 
Ultimately, folks, when we come to doctrine that is clear, and I hope already as I've shown you this, that it is, it is clear what God is saying, we have two responses, accept it or reject it. And um, that is our choice, but of course, we should never reject what God's word clearly teaches. And so it's really Paul saying, get in line with the truth of this doctrine, even if you find it hard to understand. So there's this aspect of this as well. Um, God has an election and his choice. Um, the purposes of his election stand regardless of good or evil in unborn children. He makes that clear in that verse in 11. It wasn't what Jacob or Esau had done, and therefore that part of it we can apply to God's election, that he doesn't choose or foreknow based on what he knows we're going to do, because it's not based on any good or evil that we're done. Um, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testaments says this, the omniscient God has determined everything in advance, both persons and things in salvation history, with Jesus Christ as the goal. And that's a good quote. So when you hear me say that, and that, by the way, doesn't, um, that's not in disjunction with anything that I quoted from you from my original statement um, that I had come up with a few years ago. You might just then say, well, Pastor Brock, sounds like you're Reformed and you're a Calvinist and you're a five-point tulip and all that. Is there five points? Five points, yeah, if you're full Cal. And I would say, whoa, let's stop. Give me the full opportunity for, to present things here. Oh, by the way, I don't accept those labels. Um, when people ask me that, I say, and I'm not trying to be glib or anything. I really, truly mean this. I don't want a label, okay? If reform folks, if, if really extremely reformed folks or Calvinists want to somehow include me in their group, they're going to be very disappointed with what I'm going to say next. I will fail to be a good Calvinist or good reformist. So I don't accept the label folks. What I'm, what I try, I pray by God's grace is I just look at God's word and present it to you. The truth of what his word says, and I don't need a label. And if, if you have concerns about that, we can talk about it. I don't accept those kinds of labels. Okay. I just said salvation is by God's sovereign choice, but here's the next statement. Salvation is offered to all through faith in Jesus Christ. John 3.16. Turn to John 3.16, a very well-known verse. And this will help us understand the other side, that those that agree with the full definition of election that I just described, this reflects the extreme, the wrong extreme, I believe, that they then go to based on logic. It is not appropriate. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That God sent his son into the world to condemn, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. What does it mean, the world? Well, this is an arguable thing. And for those that are full Calvinist or, or extremely reformed, Many times they say something like this. God loved the world. The world here is the world that rejected God. It's the whole entity, the whole scope of individuals who have rejected God, right? That's the world. 
both sides agree to that. But then the ultra reform side says, well, world means um, it's almost like types of people um, that there are all that, that it represents all kinds of people throughout the world without distinction, you might say. So that it doesn't really refer to all of those that rejected in the whole world, every last person. But it refers to all kinds of people without distinction, that God doesn't um, hold distinction against one person against another. All are equal in their, um, all kinds of people are equal in God's offering them of salvation. Why do they do that? Because they really can't have, to, if they really want to press this idea of uh, this truth of election, then world can't mean every single unsaved person in the world because God chooses. So obviously some don't get chosen. But folks, really here, and just for, for your relief, the, world, the word world means world. It means the whole world, okay? It's really in context here. It really stretches it beyond the bounds, I'm convinced, to say it's, it's kinds of people or without distinction. It really in context in the meaning of the full word means without exception. It is all unsaved humanity. God so loved all of the world. And thus, I believe the context in John 3.16 favors unlimited atonement, that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. I'm convinced of that. In this context and many others, it has to be that. Rather than limited atonement, that he died for the sins of all kinds of people. In context, the word world really means the whole unsaved world. Can't get away from that. Um, there's a couple of things here, a couple of quotes that I think are helpful. One is by a man named J.R. Packard, and Mark Minnick, um, I heard him give this quote. He was in a class that Packard had taught. Packard is a well-known author. He's not with us any longer. He was a very staunch Calvinist and reformed. And he even said this, we must, we must preach the gospel to everyone because there is a sense with some Calvinists, I don't want to paint them all that way, but there is a lethargy sometimes in preaching and giving the gospel to everyone because there's that idea of well God's already chosen some and he's and in their extreme view he's already um, chosen some for eternal glory and for eternal punishment so evangelism falls short Packard will have none of that an extreme Calvinist he says we must preach the gospel to everyone because we do not know who the elect are and this is where it's really kind of surprising. He says, God really wants everyone to be saved. To the Calvinists, this does seem a little untidy. And it is untidy. Because for those that want to follow after Calvin and be that extreme, they're following a logic and things that, are, that follow human logic where God's word does not allow them to go. Folks, God really wants everyone to be saved. Please understand that. Don't, don't um, fear any other, any other answer to this than that. God does truly love the world. And he sent his son that through him to the whole world, 
that they might be saved. Um, chapter 9 of Romans, if you'll go, turn, turn to chapter 10 here in Romans. Now, Romans 9, we just went through a little bit of that. That's very staunchly adamant that God elects, right? We all saw that in Romans 9. But look in chapter 10. Paul focuses on the decision that all individuals have to their faith in the name of Jesus, the responsibility they have in their faith. The invitation of salvation, you'll see here, is open to all. Look at this. Just look at these. Um, hold on a second here. Look at these verses in chapter 10, starting in verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. Okay? Isn't that putting the responsibility on each of us? The, confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever, that really does mean whosoever, whoever in the world believeth on him shall not be ashamed. There's no difference. There's no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord overall is rich unto all that call upon him. And in case we didn't get what Paul was saying, he repeats it again. For whosoever, again, shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The invitation is open to whoever will make good on their responsibility to choose Jesus. The choice is there for them to make. So with both sides of this then, folks, there's the question. How can both be true? How can God clearly chooses? He foreknows, he predestines. How can man then have a choice? How can man have a responsibility in this at all? And Paul, in the end, answers that. Look at Romans 11. It's a great way to cap off this whole conversation, verse 30. And by the way, verse 32, I'm, 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 go to verse 33, but verse 32 gives the ultimate reason, even for election and for God's chosen, choosing Israel or Jacob over Esau. For God hath concluded that all are in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. God uses these circumstances to show mercy. So a wonderful end to that. But then he says, he's like, like even Paul saying, I understand that these two sides of this coin are very hard. They're impossible to put together. And then this should be our response when we can't make logical sense of these two important truths, two sides of the coin that then in our mind don't make any sense as far as how they connect. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Who's going to tell God, well, God, you need to subject yourself to human logic because this doesn't make sense to me. So I'm going to provide advice and counsel to you. This has to make sense in my mind. Paul says, no, no one gets to be the counselor of God who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompense unto him again. And then he gives him glory through him and to him in all things, to be glory forever. Paul says, I know this doesn't make sense, but they're both true. And God understands beyond what we, we do. These truths don't make logical sense to us. How can they? Does this mean that God is somehow illogical? 
Well, Paul would say, God forbid. What does it mean then? It means that God transcends our human logic. He is supra-logical. He's better at being logical than we are. His thinking, his design, his way. Um, this is actually a quote from a seminary professor of mine. Uh, Rick knows him, a very gifted teacher that I have gained much from. Some of you I've given a book recently called, called Not By Chance, How to Learning About a Sovereign God. This is a quote from that. His theology, God's theology, is infinitely above our intellect, beyond the grasp of our comprehension, and out of the reach of our clever rationalizations. We can't understand it. We bow to the fact that our human logic can't make sense of it, but God does. Let me just give you two more examples here, just real quick. John 6, 44. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up in the last day. Oh, there's election. The Father has to draw a person to Jesus. That is true. If you go back a, a chapter, John 5, 40, and ye will not come to me, or it has the idea of you're not willing to come that you might have life. Here Jesus describes people that could have been willing, have a, had a responsibility to come to him, and they would not do it. Both sides, from Jesus himself. And so when we see this, we just submit to the things that we can't understand. And, but at the same time, it is important upon us to proclaim both. And if someone comes to me now and says, Pastor Brock, do you believe in predestination or that God chooses? I will say, undeniably, yes, he does. You can't get any other description from that or, or understanding than the clear explanation of Scripture. But if you were to come to me and say, does man have a responsibility? Does, does um, he have a choice in putting his faith in Jesus or not? I would say, absolutely, yes, he does. Well, how does that work? And some people, even some friends, have accused me of just kind of copping out. That's, that's, that's the answer you give when you can't really give an answer. Well, folks, it just um, submits our logic to God's wisdom and knowledge. And, you know, I'm in good company here. Let me read to you some other folks that you'll know well. Charles Spurgeon, this is a good time to throw in a good Charles Spurgeon quote. Listen to what he said. The divine will is accomplished, and yet all men are perfectly free agents. I cannot understand it, says one. My dear friend, I am compelled to say the same thing. I do not understand it either. Certain of my brethren deny free agency, free will, and so get out of the difficulty. Others assert that there is no predestination, no election, and so cut the knot. But as I do not wish to get out of the difficulty and have no wish to shut my eyes to any part of the truth, which is important, I believe both predestination and free agency to be facts. How they can be made to agree, I do not know. And I love this. And I don't care to know. That is where we need to be. It is when people have to say, but God, I have to understand or I won't trust you. God forbid. Don't go there. I don't care. I am satisfied to know anything which God chooses to reveal to me and equally content not to know what he does not reveal. 
Believe these two truths and you will see them in practical agreement in daily life, though you will not be able to devise a theory for harmonizing them on paper. I'm in good stead with Charles, with, with Charles Spurgeon there. Also with a hymn that we know well, and I forgot to mention this to you, Kurt, and I'll let, I'll let you decide in the end, but there's a hymn called I Know Whom I Have Believed, Daniel Whittle. We sing this all the time, and we sing this very truth, and we don't even realize it. One verse says, I know not how the saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word, that's man's responsibility, wrought peace within my heart. The next verse says, I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the word. Here's the, here's the next phrase, creating faith in him, election. We sing it all the time. Now, maybe you're not going to enjoy that as much the next time. I hope that's not the case. We must affirm both truths and know that God understands how they work together. His predestination of believers to eternal life is a truth that offers confidence that God will accomplish his purposes in us. This fights against um, having lack of faith, or, or not lack of faith, but uh, lack of, um, uh, the word just slipped my mind, um, assurance. Lack of assurance, because we know that God has chosen us from before time, and he will accomplish his purpose in us. But we also have the responsibility to choose to put our faith in Christ for salvation. We do have that responsibility. How can these fit together? Only God knows. Are you going to trust him that they do? I hope you are.